Well, I read the news this morning, as I usually do, fire up the iPhone and read the news and get depressed over breakfast, and I saw an article. There was a woman who was riding a New York City subway, and there were very sexually provocative ads that were posted all over the subway, and she just snapped and said, that's it. And so, of course, everybody walks around with a video camera in their pocket, so now we have video of this woman ripping down these uh, sexually provocative ads in the subway, which I don't know who you are, lady, but I feel you. Like, I, <laughs> I'm just like, you ever, you ever feel that? It's just like I am tired of just this tidal wave of ideology that is kind of forced down our throats. At its core, church, it is an ideology that rejects God as king and makes ourselves king. It's the original lie from the original liar, right? The original liar being Satan. He's the one and only the king of lies, the father of lies. And he said in the garden with our first parents, he says, you don't need God over you. You can be your own God. You can decide right from wrong. You don't need him. And so we've, we've bought that lie ever since. And Satan and his minions continue to stoke the fires of sin and independence that reject all things God and his kingdom. However, church, we must remember and be encouraged, as dark as it seems out there sometimes and as challenging as it seems out there sometimes, remember that God's kingdom is eternal, and God's kingdom cannot be stopped, and God's kingdom is based on God's power. It will never be overwhelmed. And to those who think this current culture is something new, something worse than it's ever been, we read in our passage that the kingdom of God today uh, has been rejected since Jesus started the church and will continue to be because it all comes to a point in Jesus Christ. And so who we think of Jesus Christ, uh, what we make of him, and most of all, our heart's posture towards Jesus Christ is essential. Either he's the one who brings the kingdom of God or he's not. And that's what we saw in Matthew 12 as Bob read that. But jump back over to Matthew 12 again. Last week we looked at Jesus, the servant Messiah, the one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament, the one who would come to bring justice to the world and justice to the weak. Our culture can try and define justice, but ultimately they fail because cultural justice is based on the wrong standard. It's whatever their interpretation of justice is, right? Whereas God's justice, he's the author of justice because he is perfectly just. He is the good and righteous judge. We just sung that. And God's throne is actually established for justice. And therefore, the justice of Jesus is our hope. Matthew has been showing us recently who the Bible claims Jesus is, especially in his supremacy if you can think back the last couple of weeks, Jesus said that he's greater than Moses, that he's greater than David, he's greater than the temple, he's greater than the Sabbath, he's greater than the law, he's greater than sickness and injustice. And this week, it's my hope and prayer that we will see the supremacy of Jesus Christ over Satan and over evil. Look at Matthew 12, starting at verse 22 again. Then, picking up with our narrative, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, 
They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Okay, if you're new to what's going on here, this is Jesus' earthly ministry prior to the cross. And Jesus' earthly ministry prior to the cross consisted of not only teaching the gospel and proclaiming the kingdom, but also doing miracles, physical miracles of healing, of raising the dead, and also of healing people from being possessed by demons, casting out demons. This isn't the first time, if you're jumping in today, we didn't arrive in Matthew 12 by accident. What we do is we work our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and that's the passage that comes up. This is kind of, as I said to somebody this morning when I was meeting them, I said, uh, this was probably one of those passages that I might have skipped because it's like, this is a hard passage. You know, wake up, most pastors don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I think I'm going to preach on demon possession and blasphemy. That is going to grow this church, man. That is going to blow the roof off things. But, but we, uh, we don't shy away from the hard passages. And we go right through the Bible because the Bible has meaning. Not us, what we bring to the meaning. I should never stand up here and say, here are five ways to have a happier Monday. Maybe there, maybe there are, but, but what I'd be doing then is creating my own thoughts and then hopefully putting other verses around it to then support whatever my thoughts are. Instead, what the Bible says, we call that expositionally, is that we go to the Bible, we extract the meaning of the Bible, right? What it's saying here, and then we apply that to our lives, which is the challenge, right? And so as we come to a passage like this, we remember that we've been building up in context all throughout Matthew. It's not the first time that we've run into demon possession. Chapter 8 we saw a demon-possessed dude who was living among the tombs. He was possessed by so many demons that his, and his name was called Legion. And Jesus casts them out with a word, just a word, and hold that thought. It's a, it's a level set us here, what are, what are demons? We tend to go to extremes on this, like many things. Either we think the world is made up of demons and everything that happens to me, I have a flat tire. It is the demon of a flat tire that has oppressed my car. Or, or sometimes we go to this side where it's just like demons don't exist and I don't think anything about them at all. Right? Neither extreme is correct. Demons themselves are spiritual beings. They have rebelled against God. They were thrown out of the heavens along with their boss, Satan, or as this passage calls him, Beelzebul. Weird name. Some say it literally means Lord of the Flies or my personal favorite, Lord of the Dung. It is Satan, his name, Lord of the Demons. So that's who we're talking about here. They are enemies of God and naturally, therefore, enemies of his people, enemies of the church. And as part of Jesus' validation of who he is, he is expressing his supremacy over demons and over evil by casting them out. Or maybe you've heard exercising demons. Demons are still around today. They have limited power here on earth as far as God allows. I'm right with my good friend Martin Luther on this that said, even the devil is God's devil. He is sovereign over evil. He's given Satan a limited leash in this world. Why? Well, that's one of the mysteries of God. But I think it probably contributes to the realization that this world is broken, that we see when we see evil, 
When we see demons and evil at work, we see that this world is broken. When we see death, when we see sin, when we see sickness, we're reminded of that. And thus, we're reminded to be driven to the Savior. Right? So, yes, he has limited power. Can demons possess people? Believers, short answer, no. Demons cannot possess believers. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, and greater is the one that's in he than is in the world. So believers, you cannot be possessed by a, a, a demon. You can be harassed by demons, but you cannot be possessed by demons. Unbelievers, yes. Unbelievers can be possessed by demons. And actually, there's a sense where actually until you're in Christ as an unbeliever, you're possessed by a demon. I don't mean like crazy seizure, frothing at the mouth, you know, setting things on fire kind of thing. But I mean, you are under the control of sin. You're under the control of evil. I'm not making this up. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead, speaking of, of somebody who's an unbeliever, right? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Did you catch that? That's what it's telling us. The spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. And so those who have not yet come to Christ, all they know is sin. And that's under the limited control of Satan. He wants you to sin. He wants you to be farther away from salvation. He wants to draw your heart away from it. Verse 3, among whom we all, right? That's all of us. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Church, this is what Jesus came to do, was break the power of Satan. He came to defeat the devil. He came to free people from the power of sin and therefore the power of Satan. And that's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now that we have that foundation set, let's look again at what's going on in our narrative. We see back in Matthew 12 that this man was brought to Jesus, right? Can you imagine this? Like I always read into things. When I'm reading this, I just see these guys dragging this crazy demon-possessed guy towards Jesus and Jesus and his humanity is probably like, okay, so I guess I'm not getting lunch today. Like, it just, it's just like kind of, here we go again. Like, people just constantly bringing him people to heal and to help. This man is brought to Jesus. Of course, his reputation for miracles has gotten around. We see people bringing him the sick and the demon-possessed. And this man is demon-possessed to the extent that he is blind and he is deaf, our text tells us, and mute. And Satan, taking full advantage of the power of sickness, right? Sickness is caused by sin, not always a one-to-one -one ratio. You can't say that I didn't read my Bible today, so therefore I have a head cold. It doesn't work like that. But, but the presence of sickness in this world is a result of sin, capital S, sin being in the world. That's why we have sickness. And so therefore, Satan takes advantage of that and says... I'm going to strike this man to the extent that he is blind and he is mute. He brings him to Jesus, our text, and gives us no help at all as far as what Jesus does. It just simply says he healed him. That's all it says. It's also in the other parallel accounts in Mark and in Luke, and Mark and Luke give us no help either. But well, all we know is it's important because if it's, if it's in the, the three Gospels, it's pretty important. 
He heals this man, like we said before, probably with a word. Jesus could do it with a thought. He just heals the man. This man who's been oppressed by a demon, this man who is blind, who is deaf, now, our text tells us, he healed him so much to the extent that the man spoke and he saw. And all the people around him wonder, can this be the son of David? Meaning, it's a messianic term, right? Meaning, is this the Messiah? Because if it is the Messiah, the Messiah prophesied long ago, right, in, in, in the first part of our Bibles in the Old Testament, if it is the Messiah, the Messiah is going to walk around and he's going to do stuff like this. He's going to be casting out demons. He's going to be healing people. He's going to be teaching with authority. And so people see this happening and they say, can this be the Messiah, the son of David, meaning the one who will come from the line of David, from Judah, which Jesus did. As you can imagine, the Pharisees are not as excited to see people wondering openly if this is the Messiah. And immediately they try and shut it down and they mutter to themselves or they say to the people or however it went, they say to them, he casts out demons. Yeah, sure, but he does so by the power of the devil. He does so by the power of Satan. He does so by the power of Beelzebul, meaning his power to cast out demons is demonic in and of itself. And Jesus, this is such an amazing response. Jesus, in his masterful, apologetic response, look at what he says in verse 25. He says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house is divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then Will his kingdom stand? It's so beautiful because Jesus says, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So you're telling me that that's your big idea, that I'm Satan and I'm casting out Satan. That doesn't make any sense because then I'm going against myself. Then I'm doing battle against myself. And he says, a kingdom that is divided will not stand. He says, a house that is divided will not stand. So I cannot be doing this by the power of Satan. Otherwise, I would be working against myself. Duh, in other words. He then goes on to say this in, in, in verse 27. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, uh, indeed, you may plunder his house. Did you, did you, first of all, did you catch where we started? I kind of skipped over it a little bit, right? But Jesus knew their thoughts, right? He said, Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Okay, so remind me again how the Bible never claims that Jesus is God, because I, everywhere I look in Matthew, I see it. Nobody can know thought. That's God's stuff, okay? Nobody can know anyone else's thoughts except God himself. And then he says, okay, fine. He shoots them down with this kingdom-divided nonsense. I can't be Satan casting out Satan. But then he says, hey, what about your guys? 
Because apparently there was exorcisms or were exorcisms going on. Apparently there were Jewish exorcists running around casting out demons or trying to cast out demons. And he says, I have a question for you. If I cast out demons by the power of Satan, which by the way worked, if you saw that, how are your guys then casting out demons? Because what's going in the background here is there's only two kingdoms. Either you're casting out demons by the power of God or you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he basically says, they're your judges here. He basically says, yeah, I'm the real deal. Your guys are the ones casting out or trying to cast out demons by satanic influence and by satanic power because they're not with me. And I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's doing this. Jewish historian Josephus records that Jewish exorcists used to do crazy rituals to cast out or attempt to cast out demons. One of them included putting a giant earring in somebody's nose and pulling them along, literally trying to pull the demon out of them. Not sure how that worked. I'm not sure how many people were walking around without noses back then, but it didn't probably work. Jesus doesn't have any elaborate ceremonies. Jesus doesn't have any elaborate words. He's not screaming and yelling and dancing and chanting. He just says he heals the man. That's all he says. And he shows his authority and also the lunacy of the Jewish exorcists in the way that he just does it with a word. France writes this, supernatural power demands a supernatural source. And if they are not prepared to admit it that it's divine, there's only one alternative. There's, there was no other kingdoms here, people. There's two. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil set up against the kingdom of God. And so if the Pharisees are not going to admit that Jesus is from God, they're saying he's from the kingdom of Satan, which ironically is completely the opposite because they're the ones who are aligned with the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus drops that clearly. He says, you have two choices. This is either through the power of God or through, its power, or through, through the power of Satan. And then he drops that beautiful line. He goes, but if this is for real, if I'm doing this by the, by the power of God, then guess what? You're seeing the kingdom right here, right now. And in Jewish thought, the kingdom looms huge still to this day. That's why the Jews reject the Messiah because they say, okay, fine, where's the kingdom? Well, Jesus has said over and over again, I'm the kingdom. I'm ushering the kingdom. The kingdom is in me. And he says one more time here, if this is true, if I'm truly doing this by the power of God, guess what? The kingdom's here right now. You are seeing it right here, right now. Which, of course, Jewish people were like, what are you talking about? How dare you declare to be the Messiah? And now you're saying you're the one who's bringing the kingdom. He sets up a, a quick example. He says, guess what? Just to further drive the point home. He says, if I'm going to rob somebody's house, and they're jacked up and yoked up and strong, and they're ready for me with all their weapons, like, you better have a plan. You better bring some stronger buddies that are going to go with you, that you're going to break into his house, and you're going to tie him up, and then and only then can you plunder his house. You just can't walk into a strong guy's house or someone who's ready for it. You're going to be in a world of hurt. But Jesus says, then and only then, if you bring guys with you who are stronger, who bind the strong man up, then you can plunder. And that's exactly what's going on behind the background. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's binding Satan. And he's saying, guess what? That's me. I'm stronger than Satan. This is what I'm doing right now. I'm here on earth. I'm bringing the kingdom right here, right now. 
I'm the one that's stronger than Satan, and only I can do this because I am more powerful than Satan. I've come to, de- to bind him. I've come to defeat him. I've come to take back what's rightfully mine. One of my seminary professors says Satan came to, or Jesus came to tie up Satan and take his stuff. Which he did. We, we sometimes forget that, church, that, that sometimes we think like, man, doesn't God see what's going on here? Doesn't God see that? I mean, this poor man, afflicted, he's blind, he's deaf. And sometimes we think we're the only one upset about that. That's what God's wrath is. God is legitimately angry that his perfect creation has been spoiled by sin. He's legitimately, when someone dies, when someone passes away, yes, we grieve. But I'll tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ grieves more. Because he sees, remember Lazarus? Remember he stopped and he grieved and he wept. Why? Because he saw what sin did in taking his friend. Jesus weeps. Jesus feels this. Jesus is angry. And there's that that kind of holy kind of moxie where Jesus is like, no, I'm here and this is going to end. I'm going to bind him. I'm going to take back what's rightfully mine. This man is going to be healed. And one day, Satan, you will be banished forever. We've got to remember that. And so I'll say this. We see the supremacy of God over evil in Jesus Christ. We see the supremacy of God over evil in Jesus Christ. And again, maybe sometimes we don't think about that so much. But part of what the Holy Spirit is communicating here through Matthew is that bottom shelf, right? Cookies on the bottom shelf. God is more powerful than evil. We just got to remember that. Sometimes people come in, they need to hear God loves you, which he does. God loves you. But also, let's, let's remember, God is more powerful than evil. And sometimes when we see things in this world, we look at the news, we get overwhelmed. Be reminded of this, church. Be encouraged. Evil cannot and will not have the last word. And when we see the the supremacy of God in Jesus Christ, we are reminded when we're worn down by sickness or the effects of sin or, or abuse or any other sin that impacts us, be reminded God is more powerful than evil. And when we see the way that sin takes and steals and twists and causes us to grieve, remember, God is more powerful than evil. Why? Because all things hinge on who? Jesus. That's the point. He's the one saying, I'm the one bringing the kingdom right here. It all is about me. So it all hinges on Jesus. Let's jump over to 1 John chapter 11. I think or, <laughs> there is no chapter 11 in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. I think I put it in your bulletins. Starting in verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, cool. Thanks, John. How do we test the spirits? Here you go. By this, you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, who you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you've overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
God is supreme over evil, and we see that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John writing to us says, you want to know how you know what's what? You want to you know spiritual warfare? You want to see what's from God, what's not from God? What are they saying about Jesus? Do they say he's from God? Then that's from God. Does he say that they're from Satan? And they're not. What, what, what Jesus' side note, we see, the, we see the Trinity at work deep in that passage, right, in 1 John. What do they say about Jesus Christ? Do they confess that Jesus is from God? If they do not, they're on the side of Satan. The Antichrist, who says he's already at work in the world. We see our, our culture turns to, uh, continues to turn more and more blatantly anti-God, away from God. It's what they're saying about Jesus. That's what culture is continuing to get more and more violently reacting against is, you claim that Jesus is God? They, they react to that violently. And then we know where that comes from. What they're saying about Jesus, is it actually what the Bible says about Jesus? Because the Bible claims Jesus came in the flesh. The Bible came, claims that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that it's exclusive. And so whose side are the Pharisees on then? They've just claimed point blank that this is, he's doing this by the work of Satan. So Jesus says, and they know full well what Jesus is saying, you guys are the ones that are from Satan, not me. But look at what John tells us, church. This is our encouragement, right? I said it already once before. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We see the superiority, the supremacy of God over evil in Jesus Christ. Satan and his minions are still alive and well, and they're at work in the world today. But what they're doing is they're trying to capitalize on the destruction that sin has already brought. They're, they're delusional thinking that they can actually still win this war, but they can't because the victory was sealed in Jesus Christ on the cross and when he walked out of the tomb. God has given them limited reign, but they are dogs on a leash. And Satan, First Peter tells us, he prowls around looking for someone to, to devour, and we're called to resist him. And how are we called to resist him? By standing firm in the faith of Jesus Christ. No weird spiritual incantations, no talking to demons, no running around your house with candles or anything else like that. Just stand firm in the faith because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And it all hinges on Jesus Christ. And so as we see demonic activity, which it really is, through the destruction of sin and abuse and all of that stuff in the world and sickness and death, let us be encouraged that God is indeed stronger than evil. And one day, we are reminded that Jesus will return. This won't go on forever. Jesus will return, and he will finish Satan off. He will punish them forever in the lake of fire, and until that happens, we need to trust in the supremacy of God, which is, at its point, Jesus Christ. We need to be firm in our faith. We need to pray that God uses evil, what? To draw people to himself through the understanding that Jesus can't and won't be ignored. We have to come to a decision about who Jesus is. Either we're in Christ or we're not. Either he's from God or he's not. 
And that's where Jesus goes next, back in our chapter. Look at Matthew chapter 12, just one verse. Look at verse 30. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's a pretty famous saying. Even today, we can hear, you know, you're either with me or you're not. You're either for me or you're against me, right? But let's look at this for a minute here. Again, there are only two sides, the side of God and the side of Satan. If you're aligned with Jesus, you're on the side of God. If you reject Jesus, you're on the side of Satan. He is blatantly saying again that the Pharisees are on the side of Satan. Why? Because they're not with him. They're the ones who just called him from the devil himself. They've clearly rejected Jesus as being from God. But, but what about us? You know, some in our culture might outwardly reject Jesus. Some will again have that violent reaction against Jesus, against the gospel, so we know where they stand. But some others might be just ambivalent. To not make a choice about Jesus is to reject him. We need to remember that. Jesus is not going to be ignored. He says, you're either with me or you're against me. So to just not make a choice about Jesus is actually to reject him. Even if you have gone to church all your life, if you accept the claims of Jesus intellectually, you're like, yeah, this is just a better way to live. I'd, I'd rather live a good, solid, moral life. But Jesus won't let us do that. Jesus calls us to surrender to him. Jesus calls us to submit to him. If you're just an intellectual kind of Christian or a moralistic kind of Christian, have you actually rejected him? So Jesus doing the work then and now, he's saying he's gathering his church. He's gathering his elect, if you will. He's gathering his children. He preaches the gospel. And he demonstrates who in his power the, the children will respond to and or not respond to, and that determines whose you are, right? Our text, of course, he's speaking of the Pharisees. They're not aligned with him, and, and obviously uh, they're being scattered. They're moving farther and farther away from the kingdom of God. But the truth is, that's all part of God's plan, right? Those that are his will be gathered to Jesus. Those that are not will be scattered away from Jesus. Jesus is doing the work of the kingdom of God. Either you're gathering or you're scattering. Jesus uses, or God uses the message of Jesus, what we refer to here as the gospel message, to either gather his children together or drive those away who are not. And if I, I wanted to break out this verse to make this point. The gospel of Jesus either softens our hearts or hardens our hearts. God will lose none of his children. I don't, you get all kinds of, he's God, right? But he knows who are his children. He's not up there begging people to come to him like some bad car salesman, right? He, he knows who are his children. And he's working all events in history to bring his children, to gather his children to himself. And that same gospel message is either going to bring you to Jesus or it's going to turn you off and harden you away from Jesus. If you're new to the church or to faith, we use the word gospel a lot here at Highlands. We explain it in detail in your bulletins. It's in there every week. The gospel is actually news, though. When you talk about what the gospel is, it's news. And it actually first is bad news. The gospel's first bad news that we all have, because of our parents, our, our spiritual parents, 
Adam and Eve, and also every single one of us in our own way, the Bible says, we have all turned from him. We've all rejected him. We've all substituted ourselves as king in our lives and said, I don't need you. I know what I'm doing. We've kicked God out of his own creation, right? And the bad news is, we just read it in Ephesians a little while ago, he has legitimate wrath against that. And so it's not that God sends people to hell. We're all born on our way to hell. That's our default environment because you're a human being. That's called sin. That's called total depravity. We are all actually born separated from God. That's the bad news of the gospel. But the the good news of the gospel isn't good unless you know the bad news. The good news is that God has done something about that. The good news is that God has always had a plan. The good news is that he knew he had to make a way for sinful human beings to be reconciled to himself. And so he gives us Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect, the one who lived the life we couldn't lead. He did these things to prove he was the Messiah, casting out demons, all of that stuff to prove who he was. He went to the cross in our place to pay the price for our sin, then was resurrected again in another miracle by the Father. And only through faith can we be reconciled. Only through faith in Jesus can we have that be good news for us. The gospel, increasingly in our culture today, gets a violent reaction to it. Anybody else notice that? You talk about Jesus, you're going to get a violent, increasingly violent reaction to it. Some people hate it. They're angry about it. They say it's exclusive. They say it's narrow-minded. Have you noticed culture redefines, we're at the stage where culture is redefining language now. Terms that we've used for, for generations and generations now are being changed. And so, so if you have a view that is contrary to my view, you're doing me harm. You're doing me violence. I need to go to where it's safe. Apart. We're talking about ideas here, people. We're not talking, I'm not punching you in the face or anything here. The point is that we have to have views that are different from each other. That's how we grow. That's how we change. There has to be truth and there has to be not truth. But watch that. Culture is redefining terms. But the gospel is light and life to those who are God's. This is all part of God's plan to harden some and to soften others. He knows who his children are. Ray Ortland who Mel and I had the, the great opportunity to spend time with uh, when we were on sabbatical. He wrote a little book called The Gospel, and the subtitle, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. He writes this, The one thing the gospel never does is nothing. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ refuses to be held at an arm's length with critical detachment. No one judges the gospel. It judges all and saves some. We must take this heart to ourselves. Every time we hear the gospel preached, it either hardens us a little more or it softens us a little more. What a dramatic picture and a beautiful way of phrasing what Jesus is saying right here in verse 30. And Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm salvation. What you think of me is really the only thing that matters. Right now, it's either hardening hearts or it's softening hearts. You're either with me or you're against me. Hear this. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Either we've submitted to him or we're rejecting him. Now, that being said, I know that we all go through a period of figuring out what that is. There was a time in my life where I rejected Jesus, right? And we're going to talk about that in a little while. There is the the opening of the eyes, right? It's not a once and done kind of thing. But there will be a day when it's too late. 
There is no middle ground with Jesus. You and God do not have an arrangement with your sin. He is not okay with you being Lord of your life. He's not okay that you throw him a bone every once in a while. Because he's not only Savior, he's Lord. And he will have nothing less than everything that is his. And the gospel of Jesus, therefore, either softens or hardens hearts. We either are for Jesus or we're against Jesus. So we had better be really careful what we say and the attitudes we cultivate in our hearts about Jesus. Let's look at verse 31. Jesus then drops a therefore. Because of everything that's happened, because of everything he said, he says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is definitely a contestant in the top scariest verses in the Bible competition. Is there such a thing as an unforgivable sin? What if I commit it? What if I have committed it previously and I didn't know it? What if I did it by accident? What if I say the wrong thing? Am I put in this category of being unforgivable? Let's unpack this as it's very misunderstood. First, what is blasphemy itself? Blasphemy means to denigrate, to defame, to slander. And so if we put the pieces together in our text here, what's the context, right? Jesus is casting out a demon. The Pharisees are saying he did that all from the, the power of Satan, right? So in other words, they're rejecting Jesus to the extent that they attribute what he's doing to the opposing kingdom of Satan. Jesus claims that he is the Messiah, and they find that so ludicrous that they not only just do not agree with that, they say that he's not from God, he's from Satan. They've rejected him that much that they say there is no way that this guy is the Messiah, even to the extent that this guy is from Satan himself. Jesus goes on to tell them that if you speak a word against him, or the Son of Man, as he puts it in this passage, you will be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Now or in eternity, he says. And this is a little tricky, but if we keep it in context, we can see that Jesus is reinforcing the same thought. You can reject Jesus and his message, and that can be forgiven. Right? We mentioned that there's a point in time, there's a point in time in my own life where I rejected the message of Jesus. But then I realized I was wrong. And I repented and believed in the message of Jesus, and therefore I was forgiven. You can be forgiven by realizing you're wrong. You can be forgiven by repenting and believing. And again, many of us have those testimonies where over time we rejected the message of the gospel as foolishness. I think of my friend who was an elder at a, a church and in college, he rejected the message of Jesus so hard that he went to the local Christian, Christian organization and they put a bloody cross on their, their lawn and they put a doll up there and they mocked Jesus. And they said, come find your savior. Now he's an elder in the church, right? So, so we can think the message is foolishness, even pretty hard until Jesus gets a hold of us and then we realize we're wrong. And then we come to believe, right? But if you take it a step further, 
And he would adopt a sustained heart position that the whole message is a lie. That there's no need of forgiveness. Like, I didn't even, I didn't even know what you're talking about. I don't need forgiveness. There is no God. There is no sin. There is no nothing. You're crazy. And if that, anyone who claims that Jesus is, is God the Son, anyone who claims that the message of the gospel is true, and you just continually say that they're wrong, that this is not true, by keeping this as a sustained position of the heart and never repenting, you are actually mocking the sovereign king of kings, and he will not be mocked. There will be no more forgiveness left for you, so be careful. I'll say it this way. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. And, and again, maybe a couple more things to help us get our arms around this. First, blasphemy is not accidental. One commentator puts it like this. Blasphemy is not an impulsive action or statement. It is rather a determined course of godlessness, arising from a settled conviction that God's chosen servant, on whom he has put his spirit, is an agent of actually the very demonic powers that Jesus came to defeat. This is not something that can be accidental. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, he says, they're committing blasphemy against God by rejecting him as the ambassador of God and attributing his divine powers to Satan. It cannot be forgiven. And Jesus says that very clearly. Blasphemy is not accidental. But blasphemy, secondly, <clears throat> blasphemy is continual. Blasphemy is a settled position of the heart that shows itself in words. Another commentator said this, Blasphemy is something that one does with the mouth or the pen. It involves words, words which those who commit such a sin would be so hardened of heart and so abandoned in their sin that they feel no remorse for it. Blasphemy is not accidental. Blasphemy is rather continual. But third, blasphemy is also irretrievable. It's a heart that intentionally, continually rejects Jesus and one day will stand before Jesus and, though, and then on that judgment day know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he said he was, but it's then too late and they will receive the punishment for rejecting him. Our society, church, is a blasphemous society. We see it. We see them mocking these claims. It is increasingly set up against God. Another passage in 1 John, which you will know is very, very familiar in 1 John chapter 1, actually talks a little bit about blasphemy. Look in verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. It says, this is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship in, with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, right? So if you say you're a Christian, but yet you continue to sin, knowingly and blatantly and unrepentedly, you're a liar. You're, you, maybe you're not a Christian. You're not walking in the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be walking in the light of understanding. That's sin. I need to stay away from it. I'm forgiven. I don't need to do that. Verse 8, but if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now look at verse 10, especially on the heels of verse 8. If we say we have not sinned, 
we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us verse 8 if we say we have no sin i don't have any sin i don't know any human being on the planet earth that actually would say that christian or not right but if we're that delusional and we think we're perfect maybe there are some people out there maybe some people are coming to mind right now i don't know verse 10 if we say we have not sinned we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What that verse is saying is this whole thing, this whole gospel is a waste. There's no such thing as sin. Jesus died for nothing. Jesus got put on a cross for nothing because there was no debt to reconcile. There's no eternal God. There's no wrath for sin. There's no eternity. This is all ridiculous and you people are delusional. I love you all very much. I don't think you're delusional, right? But that's what this is saying. That sustained heart attitude, look at verse 10 again, we make him out to be a liar. We call God of the universe a liar. Why? Because apparently he thought he needed to do it because he gave us Jesus Christ. If he didn't need to do it at all because he doesn't even exist and these things don't even happen, then God's a liar. And we do not want to be in the position of calling God a liar. What is the unforgivable sin? Intentional Continual, irretrievable rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as the Bible says he is, the Son of God. It is stubborn refusal to believe from a hardened heart who hates God. Now, God can soften hearts. That's what he did to all of us. If you're a Christian in here today, he will soften your heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that. But we're going to continue to go on and we're going to continue to reject God all of our lives, we will suffer the consequences of rejecting him as blasphemy. And there is no forgiveness. The ultimate sin, the unforgivable sin, is ultimately disbelief. It's just rejecting everything right until the day that you die. There are those who will go to their graves still rejecting Jesus and thinking it's all nonsense that is blasphemy after what God has done for us in Jesus. You say that God is a liar. And solution, turn to Christ and embrace what he's done for us. Realize there are two kingdoms and there's no middle ground. Because God's kingdom is real and his kingdom is advancing. And there's nothing, church, that can stop it. Jesus said that in verse 28. He says, if I do this by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So trying to pull all this together again, I'll bring it back to God's kingdom. God's kingdom advancement cannot be stopped. God's kingdom cannot be stopped. This all comes down to God's kingdom. That's where Jesus brought it to. There's no middle ground and the person, that, the person that's going to tell whether you're in the middle or where you're going is Jesus Christ. Either you're with the kingdom of God because you believe Jesus Christ or you're with the kingdom of Satan because you reject Jesus, Jesus Christ. There's no middle ground. You're either with Jesus who's bringing the kingdom of God or you reject Jesus and you're aligned with the kingdom of evil against God. God's kingdom cannot be stopped. And we looked at three ways in today's passage. The kingdom of God is not going to be stopped by Satan's power. The kingdom of God is not going to be stopped by Satan's power. Can we just like breathe that in for a little bit? Because some days it seems like that's in jeopardy. It's never in jeopardy. 
The kingdom of God will not be stopped by Satan's power because the supremacy of God is seen in Jesus Christ. We see it in his miracles. He casts out demons with a word. He came to defeat the works of the devil, and he did. He died on the cross, and he rose from the grave. That was proving it. Second, the kingdom of God is not going to be stopped by indecision about Jesus. Because the news of the gospel, the bad news and the good news, either that's going to soften you or it's going to harden you. The kingdom of God is not going to be stopped by just people waffling like, oh, maybe I'll accept Jesus, maybe I won't. He's not waiting. The kingdom of God is moving. The kingdom of God is advancing. And third, the kingdom of God will not be stopped by rejecting Jesus Christ. You can reject Jesus Christ. You can continue in disbelief and continue on to, to get what you want. A life without God, that's what it's going to be for eternity. But the kingdom of God will not be stopped by people's rejection of him. Our culture continues to reject God, and I'll say it again. Our culture is a blasphemous culture. It increasingly rejects the message of Jesus. It increasingly mocks the, rejection, the message of Jesus. It is increasingly violent and accusatory in that rejection. But church... Take encouragement this morning. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Not by demonic power, not by man's indecision, not by culture's rejection. And so there are many applications as we land this plane today. First, what is your position towards Jesus? I mean, I've said it before three or four times this morning. There's no middle ground with Jesus. And Jesus made that very clear. Have you rejected him as nonsense? Hopefully this text through the Holy Spirit works to soften your heart. You may be his, and he may be calling you to himself today. Why would you not listen to that call? I will talk about that anytime, day or night. Maybe you're ambivalent towards Jesus. Maybe you intellectually agree the gospel seems okay, but Jesus really isn't Lord of your life. Look at this text again. Do you see any middle ground here? There is no middle ground here. Maybe the church is going to play bells next door. <laughs> maybe you're a believer. Maybe you've walked with God for a while now. But maybe you look at the things going on in our current clown world and you say, yeah, maybe evil has a chance. It doesn't have a chance. Be encouraged. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Take hope, Christian do the work of the ministry with joy and faith and persevere. Let us pray that God will cause us to do that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for what you have given us today in your word. We thank you that you have told us point blank, Lord, that your kingdom will not be stopped. Gracious God, we would ask that you would cause us to think about these things. For those who have hardened their hearts against Jesus, would you soften them? For those who are undecided against Jesus, would you cause them to be decided? And for those of us who claim to be your children, would you encourage us as we see things in the world? Where we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.